Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 26. Grief, the path through the realm of shadow. One of the riddles, not only of the unconscious, but of human experience in general, is the capacity to love. However, it may be distorted by calculation or self-interest. In love, there is a moment of the irrational. To set one's heart on something. To give ourselves over. To attach ourselves to another person. Or even to pets, things, or places. Indeed, nothing makes us more vulnerable. For those we love become indispensable to us. Only through love do we perhaps fully recognize the other in their uniqueness. A broken pen or a damaged hubcap can be replaced, but never a person we love. To lose something that is for us unique and irretrievable, that we cannot do without and cannot replace, and yet something that we must lose against every objection of our loving heart, this is the struggle that we call grief. We will see that this conflict occupies the borderline between inner and outer realities. Something that cannot be has indeed come to pass, and this is the very core of the task of mourning. Which is why those cases of mourning in which one cannot fully be assured of the other's death, for example, when no corpse is found after an accident, are often especially difficult. Grief is the emotional pain that losses inflict on us, while mourning is the effort to cope with that pain, a passive and an active stage, an emotional state, and a process. Grief is not an illness, rather it is among life's inevitable experiences, for we live in a world that is fleeting. Nor is there a normal or clearly predictable way to mourn, such as a systematic progression of stages, as is frequently suggested. Processes of mourning are an up and down, a back and forth, a forward and backwards, and sometimes tears of pain flow along with tears of relief. Grief is finite, or it should be. But here we are already on the border of so-called complicated grief, or mental illnesses that arise out of severe grief. Some losses are too heavy. The emotional pain, the guilt felt, too great. And despite long weeks, months, or even years of suffering, there is no relief in sight. Mental life remains under the shadow of loss. The long night finds no end. The days are nothing but an endless succession of sorrow. Or rather, the mourning process comes to a standstill entirely, and depression draws near. No heartache is perceptible, but no happiness either. Within the psyche, a sea of grief is frozen. Psychic time stands still, as if, in order not to have to feel the overwhelming pain, feeling itself is given up entirely. Aside from the special circumstances of bereavement, mourning is part of all psychological development, for it is only through mourning that we can detach ourselves. And so the inability to mourn is also a description of the inability to develop. Here, however, we want to concentrate most of all on mourning processes that are acutely related to loss 
as in the case of death. Psychoanalysts have dealt with mourning in various ways. In addition to Freud, other psychoanalysts have also written groundbreaking works, such as Carl Abraham, John Bowlby, Donald Winnicott, or the contemporary analyst Vamik Volken, Verena Kast, or Eberhard Haas. Eberhard Haas has made a well-known Greek myth fruitful for the psychoanalytic understanding of mourning processes, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, which is perhaps one of the original stories on the topic of mourning and has been told with certain variations all over the world. We can take this tale as a starting point for our reflections as well, of course from a particular point of view, without being able to do justice to the complexity of the myth. Orpheus, the most gifted poet and singer of ancient times, and the nymph Eurydice were, according to legend, the most beautiful and intimate couple the world had ever seen. But through violent and tragic circumstances, Eurydice dies and leaves the grieving Orpheus behind. His grief is so great and severe that nothing can comfort him, although in his grief he writes the most beautiful songs. He cannot accept the finality of death and wanders through the world in search of his beloved until he finally reaches the gates of the underworld, where the shadows of the deceased dwell. There he stirs the watchman and finally Hades, the lord of the underworld, with his song. The god of the underworld gives him back Eurydice's under one condition, that he not turn around to look at her until he reaches the gates to the upper world, to which she is to follow him. However, at the threshold, he does just that, for he hears her footsteps. He sees his beloved Eurydice, but she disappears into the shadows, never to return. The story takes a tragic turn. Out of an overwhelming longing to see his beloved, Orpheus loses her forever. According to the psychoanalyst Eberhard Haas, however, within this tragedy lies a requirement for the mourning process, summed up in the pointed phrase, Successful mourning is a failed attempt at rescue. What does this mean on a psychological level? The real loss of a person in no way implies, here the basic problem of mourning, an inner emotional separation. On the contrary, the lost person gains an almost overwhelming presence in the inner world of the psyche. The whole inner space of the bereaved is occupied, making it hardly available for anything else, in many cases not even for something to eat. Detaching oneself psychologically from the one lost, while at the same time keeping them nearby, internalizing them, are the two poles between which the work of mourning takes place. The loss thrusts the mourner, sometimes also a whole community, into crises, making the previous demarcations of the psychic world fragile. Ordinarily, the loss of a loved one is for a start not even recognized psychologically, depending on how unexpected the loss is, that is, to what degree the loss could be mourned in advance. This can take place abruptly, in which the death is simply denied, contrary to all knowledge and the grim reality, or can involve a mourning psychosis, 
in which the loss is nullified through hallucination. The deceased is actually seen or heard, but usually accompanied by an unpleasant or frightening tinge. But even in milder cases, slight denials and distortions of reality, small psychoses, as it were, are quite frequent. The deceased is glimpsed in a crowd, or their voice is suddenly picked up out of a mass of people, or some other sounds calling the mourner by name, or he is recognized in an animal that runs across one's path, or is suddenly felt as physically present in some other way. Nonetheless, the loss is suspended in our dream life, for in general our dreams are often the visible window into the mental work of mourning. It is as if the experience of the mind struggles for every opportunity, no matter how small and remote, to raise an objection against reality, as if reality were too painful to be born in its full force. Psychoanalytically speaking, reality testing is partially suspended in order to ward off an unbearable feeling. There are, however, other very different ways of holding the overwhelming pain at bay. For instance, in a manic defense, meaning a sudden and unfounded euphoria in the face of loss, as if all pain and death could be shaken off at once, which of course usually can't be sustained, soon veering into the deepest despair and despondency. This is an extreme form of grief, which, even in the milder cases, does not usually take place as a continuous state, but rather as serial fits of grief, between which always lie phases of relief, in which normal ways of coping with life are possible. Orpheus stands at the threshold to the underworld. He composes his lamenting songs, despite all knowledge that the dead are irretrievable, that the stream of time cannot be redirected. Art, still to this day, perhaps humanity's magic charm, for conjuring the impossible from the gods. A very typical phenomena in this context are so-called linking objects, which the psychoanalyst Vamik Volkan has dealt with in numerous publications. These are specific objects that establish a connection with the deceased and are often directly related to the circumstances of parting or dying. The last photo, the watch of the deceased, his last note, his razor in which some hair is still stuck, an unwashed shirt or pillow. These are magical objects that are treasured like shrines and establish a connection, a link, between the realm of the dead and that of the living. With his watch or his glasses, the bereaved can still keep the deceased in this reality to some degree, and through the linking object, can at least maintain a place of contact where mourning is deferred. Such magical objects serve to assist in coping psychologically, but usually necessitate demystification as the mourning progresses. And yet, at first, Orpheus, the bereaved, sets foot in the realm of the dead. He becomes part of the underworld. This world and the hereafter are intertwined. On a psychological level, one could also say, the boundaries between inner and outer reality become fragile. The realm of the dead begins to gain ground in the bereaved as well. 
In his pioneering work on melancholia, Carl Abraham characterized this process as introjection or incorporation. The deceased is absorbed into one's own flesh. In archaic mourning rituals, through the practice of consuming the dead, while for us, in the symbolic gesture of the funeral feast, or consecrated in the Christian celebration of the Eucharist. Despite the external reality, he who has been interjected or incorporated continues to radiate with luminous power, inspiring hope and establishing an inner presence while the mourner gradually deals with the external absence. For the true scope of the loss cannot be overcome all at once. Sometimes such processes of incorporation are quite obvious, like when the bereaved begins to outwardly identify with the deceased, such as when they take on a similar way to speak, to dress, or by adopting similar preferences, while other times it may be more subtle. In the episodes on attachment and mentalization, we heard that processes of internalization and detachment in which tolerable forms of separation are worked through in childhood, are important for the development of the psychic structures. This forms the basis for what in psychoanalysis is called inner objects, that is, inner images of the other that make separation and progress possible. These early experiences are important for the ability to grieve later. For, after all, at the end of mourning, the departed should not have become some arbitrary nothing, but rather a meaningful memory, a part of one's own life. Over time, the detailed work of mourning transforms the image of the deceased. Usually over the course of mourning, the deceased is differentiated more and more from the real person, becomes disembodied, forfeits its sexuality, becoming a helpful or a cautionary inner object. These processes of internalization are at the same time also the sources of problematic developments. Every mourning process has an ambivalent core, the wish to detach oneself, to get away, to let the past die in oneself, at the same time the inability to expose oneself to the pain of separation perhaps because the loss is too early, too difficult. To have to tear oneself away, always, as we will hear in a moment, with such aggression, while at the same time being unable to, feeling bad and guilty. If no way out of these inner ambivalences can be found, a massive inner conflict manifests itself that can lead towards what is called melancholia or eventually depression. It is as if Orpheus were stranded in the underworld, his own inner world transformed into the underworld, where he is close to his beloved, yet where he cannot live. However, bit by bit, the longed-for other turns into an unalterable and immortal introjected object that, resistant to change, haunts the bereaved, a dead that refuses to die. The widespread fear of hauntings and ghosts revolves around the return of the dead, but this time under a demonic sign. The one you can't let go of becomes someone you can't get rid of, who can't die, 
even though he actually belongs in the realm of the shadows. With morning that has gone awry, it is no longer possible to disentangle the realm of the living from the realm of the dead. This may be why even our ancestors may have felt better furnishing the graves of their deceased with a heavy stone or slab, which are not only difficult to lift from without, but also from within. The crux of the Orpheus myth is that it is Orpheus himself who banishes Eurydice once and for all into the realm of the shadows. Not because he wants to, but because he has to, succumbing with tragic necessity to his muted fate. Every mourning process involves a bit of aggression that is necessary to carry out this inner detachment. This too is perhaps the most precarious threshold for melancholia and depression to overcome. Going on living, participating in the future, being open to the new, feeling joy and pleasure in life, these are experienced emotionally as if they were a crime, a betrayal of the departed, with corresponding feelings of guilt, an affect that is, in any case, one of the guiding themes of the mourning process. In actuality, the bereaved must mentally let the deceased pass away once again. They must turn them away amid tears and pain. This second death is what is implied by the phrase, successful mourning is a failed attempt at rescue. A death that allows the deceased to find peace in the hereafter or in the space of our good inner objects, our ideals. Complicated grief often has to do with not being able to galvanize this moment of separation aggression, or, as with depression, when it is directed against one's own ego. The psychological attempts to develop compromises or solutions for dealing with the overwhelming pain and the difficulty of detachment are diverse, for example, in the form of a psychic mausoleum, meaning certain places, like the room of the deceased person, that remain untouched and are immunized against any change. This corresponds to the freezing of grief on a psychological level, the formation of a tomb in the heart of the bereaved, where time stands still, meaning also that once grief is triggered, be it in some random smell or some symbolic marker like an anniversary, it burns as it did on day one, even when years or decades lie in between. Systematically numbing the pain of grief with medications or other substances can also be attempts at coping, up to the development of a manifest addiction, whereby this too ultimately means, in most cases, the continuation of a highly problematic inner attachment from which it is not possible to detach. As we have heard, the end of morning, that breaking of dawn after the long night, after countless interwoven threads have been painstakingly severed, goes hand in hand with the psychological acknowledgement of loss, whereby, depending on the severity of the loss, say, for example, after the death of one's own child, a piece of oneself remains with the dead child forever in the border area between reality and underworld, as when certain linking objects are kept, which, so long as it is bearable for the bereaved, need not be a sign of illness. 
Acknowledging the loss, however, does not mean that the deceased is forgotten or becomes meaningless. Interpreted in another way, we might see something intentional about Orpheus's tragic turn to look at Eurydice's, even though not of his conscious will, as if something in him knew that the upper world is not a place for the dead. At the same time, to look back means to know that there is something behind you, to remember, to let a piece of one's life history pass by into the past, while the future opens itself up to the new. The boundary between inside and outside, life and death, past and future, has been reestablished. Paradoxically, only if we are able to let the deceased go and accept the loss will they remain with us psychically, be part of us, accompany us through life as a redeemed shadow, as a memory, a piece of our own history, which is a part of us. For some difficult mourning processes, therapeutic support is necessary, whereby, for psychoanalytic treatments, certain modifications are made to the classical technique. One also speaks of therapy of regrief, or regrief work. The point is to create a therapeutic space in which a faltering mourning process can get started again, appropriate to the mourner's own speed. To this end, it is important not to further regressive processes too forcefully, even if transference phenomena usually set in quite quickly, as when the bereaved hopes to find in the therapist a piece of what has been lost. The therapist must accept this transference, while at the same time they must help the patient to detach themselves from this inner object. The therapist becomes like Virgil, a companion in the shadow realm, who nevertheless stands with one foot firmly in the upper world. The therapist must pass through the pain with the patient, offer him support with his pain without sealing themselves behind a facade of professionalism, but also without sinking too much into it themselves. Usually, comfort is not a matter of encouragement or uplifting words, but the experience of not being alone with the pain, which can make grieving processes the most emotionally challenging situation in a therapist's profession. But indeed, also among the most moving, for the work touches on the basic human reality of parting and loss, indeed for the therapist as well, while at the same time it touches on the rediscovery of life, in spite of the tears, on the thawing of the frozen sea and the feeling of reconciliation. A therapy to catch up on grief also includes a transference dynamic in which the therapist accepts as proxy for the deceased, being symbolically cast out at the end of the therapeutic work, agreeing to the second death. Often the end of grief comes about through the ending of therapy. No one can escape the reality of grief and loss, and this is not something we should be sad about either. Grief is the complement to attachment, and without attachment, the world would be a cold, dead, arbitrary place. Inhumanity threatens where we do not lament our losses, where people are stripped of their uniqueness and irretrievability, 
and are replaced without pain. Humans as guinea pigs or human capital. Disavowing uniqueness, denying love, is perhaps the worst form of resistance against grief. A society unable to mourn treats that which it needs, the nature on which it subsides, in a word itself, without love. And in order to break free from this iron cage, we may first have to find our lost tears. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.